0: Okay, praises be to our Father, our God for gathering all of us today. I know that you're excited about the book of Leviticus. Yes, I said that right. We are now in the book of Leviticus. So we finished the book of Exodus last week. We begin a new chapter, a new part of the Pentateuch or the first five books of Moses. We turn to the third book, the book of Leviticus. We have entitled it Sacrifices. We're going to find out why that is. Now we can basically divide the book of Leviticus into two big parts. It's not as big as the book of Exodus, so we can look at it this way. First part is a way of approach to our almighty God, and this way of approach is through sacrifice. We want God to be our God, and he wants us to be his people, and so we approach him. The covenant that he has given us permits us to approach him so that we can experience his This is why the tabernacle was built in the first place. However, the approach requires an offering of sacrifice. So the first part is what we're going to discuss today. second part is about the walk of holiness. Because if we're going to be with God, we have to live a life that is very distinct from the rest of the world. We have to be holy, we have to be pleasing to our God. So when it comes to the sacrifices of the Holy Bible, Two parts, right? We have to give something physical to our Father, something we give as an offering, and we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice by walking in holiness. Now, there are basically six offerings. Six. Do you know what they are? Special offering. No, we're talking about the book of Leviticus here. And so way back in the Old Testament, what are what were these six different offerings presented by Yahuwah, our God? Well, there was the burnt offering. You're probably familiar with the burnt offering. The grain offering. The drink offering. Very interesting. Fellowship offering. The sin offering. And the guilt offering. And so these are the six different offerings we're going to go through and it will encompass seven chapters of the book of Leviticus. So after our study today, we would have finished seven chapters. Is that okay? We're going to go really fast, okay? So please bear with me. So let's go and discuss first the burnt offering, what was offered when the people of Israel sacrificed burnt offerings to Yahuwah our God. Let's read the book of Leviticus 1, 1 to 3. Yahuwah called to Moses from the tabernacle and said to him, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. When you present an animal as an offering to Yahuwah, you may take it from your herd of cattle or your flock of sheep and goats. If the animal you present as a burnt offering is from the herd, it must be a male with no defects. Bring it to the entrance of the tabernacle. So you may be accepted by Yahuwah. And so the purpose of the offerings is so that we would be accepted by who? Yahuwah. Remember, it's our approach to Yahuwah, our God. So it begins with an offering. When we approach God, we should come with an offering. Back then, and even today, right, when you approach like a king or a leader, an important dignitary, Usually when people do that, when they want to show respect to person that they're approaching, what do they bring with them? They bring a gift, right? Same way with Yahuwah. When we approach God for worship, we bring with us our gift. We bring an offering, a sacrifice to Yahuwah. The main gift that the people of Israel gave was called the burnt offering. And so the burnt offering was the mainstay offering that the people of Israel gave to God what could be offered as a burnt offering it could be from your cattle it can be from your flock meaning sheep or goat but it has to be what male with no defects why because it's foreshadowing the sacrifice of who yeah. Yahusha, the Christ, who will make us acceptable to god for all time, okay? And so when the people of Israel gave offering, it also depended on their social standing or social status because not everyone can afford sheep. Not everyone can afford cattle. That would be the most expensive kind of offering. And so God also gave provision for the poor. Leviticus 14, if you present a bird, so it would not be as expensive, right? You can present a bird as a burnt offering to Yahuwah, Choose either a turtle dove or a young pigeon. So when the sacrifice is to take place, how does the process look like? In the book of Leviticus 1:4, lay your hands on the animal's head, and Yahuwah will accept its death in your place to purify you, making you right with him. And so when the people of Israel worship, right? So they bring with them what? Their animal. So the worshiper will present the offering, the animal, to the priest. But before doing that, we have to understand that worship it requires the participation of the one worshiping. It's not just you're watching a show, you're watching the, uh, the priest do his thing. No, we participate. And one of the ways by which we participate in the process of the sacrifices is we lay our hand on the animal's head. What's the purpose for this? It's for identification. We begin to identify with the animal so that Yahuwah will accept its death in our place. What for? To purify us of our sins so that we can approach God, so that we can be with God. Okay, so after we lay hands, or the ones laying hands on the animal, what happens next? then slaughter the young bull in Yahuwah's presence. That's fostered for a while. When Yahuwah was telling us, then slaughter the young bull in Yahuwah's presence, who gets to slaughter the animal? The worshiper. (laughs) Yeah. So you bring your animal and you kill it yourself. Remember, we're going to participate in worship. This is what the process is what makes them worthy before Yahuwah. So they bring the animal. And they slaughter, for example, the young bull in Yehovah's presence. And Aaron's sons, the priests will present the animals' blood by splattering it against all sides of the altar that stands at the entrance of the tabernacle. And so when it comes to worship, the priests had a function, but the worshipers as participants also had a function. right? And so the priests, they, did the function that involved the altar, the altar. The worshiper cannot approach the altar. And so arranging the wood, arranging the parts in the altar to burn the sacrifice, that was the job of the priest, not the worshiper. So the worshiper kills the animal. What else? Then skin the animal. <laughs> You're going to have to skin the animal and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, will build the fire on the altar they will arrange the pieces of the offering, including the head and fat on the wood burning on the altar. And so our part as worshipers, and when I say our part, let's pretend we go back to the days of Israel, okay? And so our part, if we live during that time, is to kill the animal, skin it, cut it into pieces, wash the intestines and all the innards with water, and then present that to the priest. The priest will be the one to go to the altar. what else will priests do? Leviticus 1:9 but the internal organs and the legs must first be washed with water you get to wash that. Then the priest will burn the entire sacrifice on the altar as a burnt offering. it is a special gift, a pleasing aroma to Yahuwah. And so what happens after all the parts are washed? Isn't it fun? Maybe worship was more exciting back then right you get to kill an animal. You get to wash all the inward parts. And so when you present it to the priest, the priest will bring it to the altar and burn the offering, the entire sacrifice. This is why the burnt offering, the whole animal is to be sacrificed on the altar to be burnt before our God. And when this offering is burnt, what does the Bible say? It becomes a special gift, a pleasing aroma to Yahuwah. Now when was the burnt offering sacrificed? Well, on several occasions. For example, every morning and every evening there has to be a sacrifice. As a matter of fact, the the altar has to always be burning, okay? 24-7. And so there's always a sacrifice. There's always a burnt offering every day, every Sabbath. The beginning of each month at Passover with the new grain, first fruits, offering of at the Feast of Weeks, at the Feast of Trumpets, and at the New Moon. And so every day they offer a burnt sacrifice to Yahuwah, our God. So that's the burnt offering, okay? Let's go to the next one, the grain offering. What is the grain offering? Let's read Leviticus 2, 1 down to 2. When any of you present an offering of grain to Yahuwah, you must first grind it into flour. You must put olive oil and incense on it and bring it to the Aaronite priest. The officiating priest shall take a handful of the flour and oil and all of the incense and burn it on the altar as a token that it has all been offered to Yahuwah. The odor of this food offering is pleasing to Yahuwah. So this is also called a meal offering, a food offering, or an offering of grain, a grain offering. Do you notice the big distinction between the grain offering and the burnt offering? What's the biggest distinction between the uh, burnt offering and the grain offering? This one's a lot less bloody, right? There's no butchering of an animal. It's a lot less bloody. And so with this offering, you offer grain. And what do you do with grain? What do people usually do with grain? They make bread. Their daily bread. Remember the prayer of Yahusha the Christ when he said, Give us this day our daily bread. And so grain represents daily sustenance. And so when people gave the grain offering, it is to remind them of their daily sacrifices to God, meaning they have to live a life daily that pleases who? Yahuwah. Not only that, it's also a reminder that their daily bread comes from who? Yahuwah, our God. And so the offering, the grain offering, is important in that respect. And the grain offering, usually, most of the time, it accompanies the burnt offering. And so when someone offered the burnt offering, they also would offer the grain Offering. Now when you present the grain offering, what is not allowed? Leviticus 2.11. None of the grain offerings which you present to Yahuwah may be made with yeast. You must never use yeast or honey in food offered to Yahuwah. Remember what yeast represented. It represented puffing up. It represented what? Sin. And so daily in our life, we must do our best to remove sin. From our life, because our daily life ought to be something that we present as an offering to our God. On the other hand, what must we always add when we present these offerings to the Father? Leviticus two thirteen. Put salt. Put salt on every grain offering, because salt represents the covenant between you and God. You must put salt on all your offerings, and so we must not put yeast, but we must add salt. Salt. We know what salt does. It fights against decay. In this case, salt represents what? A covenant that is made between God and us. And so when we look at the grain offering, it also points forward to Yahusha the Christ. How so? Book of John 12, 23, 24. Yahusha answered them. The hour now has come, n- has now come for the Son of Man to receive great glory. I'm telling you the truth. A grain of wheat remains no more than a single grain unless it is dropped into the ground and dies. If it does die, then it produces many grains. This so will the grain offering also points to the sacrifice of Yahusha the Christ. And so that's the grain offering. Let's go now to the drink offering. Hmm. What is it all about? The drink offering was not a standalone offering. It accompanied the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the fellowship offering. What was this, Numbers 15, 8 to 10? When a bull is offered to Yahuwah as a burnt offering, right, or as a sacrifice and fulfillment of a vow, or as a fellowship offering, a grain offering of six pounds of flour mixed with four pints of olive oil is to be presented, together with four pints of wine. The odor of the sacrifice is pleasing to Yahuwah. So what is the drink offering? It is the offering of wine. Usually it's in addition to the great offering and the burnt offering and also the fellowship offering, which we will talk about next time. So this is the offering of wine. What do you think that indicates? The wine offering. What does that suggest? What does that symbolize? Because a lot of the New Testament uh, teaching material uses symbolism from the Old Testament. And so when we fast forward to the New Testament, Luke 2220, this is what it says. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. And so it pointed forward to a covenant, that Yahusha would make. And so what does the pouring of wine represent? Also, John 1934, one of the soldiers, however, plunged his spear into Yahusha's side and at once blood and water poured out. It also represents sacrifice, sacrifice of your life. This is why Apostle Paul in his famous speech or his Famous letter, you probably know this, right? 2 Timothy 4, 6 to 8. He says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his So Apostle Paul, when he was about to die, he said, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. So the drink offering, it points to a sacrifice of life. Sometimes we are called upon not just to live for Yahuwah our God, but also to die for Yahuwah our God. This is why we have martyrs. And there are people who have lost their life following God. Is that a loss? Oh, no, that's a great blessing. As far as we are concerned, because when we sacrifice for the sake of our God, we know God is able to bless us. And so typically an offering would involve all three, the burnt, the grain, the wine, the burnt represents what? Worship. The grain represents what? Our daily life. The wine represents sacrifice. So the worship, the sacrifice during the Old Testament, it also indicates the kind of life we ought to live. We ought to live our life worshiping God we ought to live our life by daily living by living a daily way of life of uh, living a holy life and also we are called upon to make sacrifices when we worship our God okay now we go to the fellowship offering which is really nice and we'll show you why it's a really nice offering well why is that well first of all what is it right what is the fellowship offering and how is it different from other offerings leviticus 3 verse 6 if a sheep or goat is used as a fellowship offering it may be male or female but it must be without any defect. so unlike the burnt offering the fellowship offering can be female okay when the fellowship offering is given what is involved in the process of that offering or sacrifice Leviticus 3, 7 to 11, if you offer a sheep, you shall put your your hand on its head and kill it in front of the tent. A priest shall throw its blood against all four sides of the altar and present the following parts of the animal as a food offering to Yahuwah. The fat, the entire fat tail cut off near the backbone, all the fat covering the internal organs, the kidneys and the fat on them, and the best part of, the liver. The officiating priest shall burn all this on the altar as a food offering to Yahuwah. Notice something about the fellowship offering? It follows the same process. You lay your hands on the animal, but this time, what is offered in the altar as a burnt sacrifice? What does it say? The fat, right? What else? The fat tail, because the sheep's tail has a lot of fat. Sometimes it can weigh as as much as 50 pounds. A lot of fat, right? It's not ox tail, it's fat tail from the sheep. Cut off through the backbone, what else? All the fat covering the internal organs, because the internal organs has a lot of fat covering it. What else? The kidneys and the fat on the kidneys. And the best part of the liver, fatty liver. What do you notice about the sacrifice? What do you notice? What one word jumps out at you when it comes to the sacrifice, the fellowship offering? Huh? What is it? What jumps out at you when it comes to the sacrifice, the fellowship offering? It's all what? It's composed of what? Most of it is fat. You notice how much fat, right? All the fat, right, or the good parts of the fat is what is placed in the altar and burnt for yahuwah our god well how about the rest of the meat what's going to happen to the rest of the meat what do you think what do you think happens with the rest of the meat huh the people eat it this is why it's called fellowship offering this is why the fellowship offering was always given when there was like a big massive celebration right so the people of god celebrate when they give a fellowship offering this is why the people of israel would love it they would love it if someone had a birthday, because that one who had a birthday, he would offer a fellowship offering, right? And all of us would have a party. And so this was part of a big celebration. But notice the what the part that belongs to God is the what? The fat. The fat. And so because of this, what instruction has God given? Leviticus 3, 16, and 17. And the priests will burn them on the altar. The fat, right? It is a special gift of food, a pleasing aroma to Yahuwah. Isn't it true when you burn fat, it has a pleasing aroma? the best word? All the fat belongs to Yahuwah. You must never eat any fat or blood. This, what does it say? This is a permanent law for you, and it must be observed from generation to generation where you live. Ooh. How many here? are on the keto diet yeah some of you love the bacon they eat a lot of fat you know when it comes to the keto diet not against the keto diet or anything like that but usually a lot of people kind of eat so much animal fat i mean there's good kind of fats right fish fat uh, nut fat right some good kinds of fat but animal fat's really not good Here's Yehovah. He says, you must never eat any fat. This is a permanent law. Just like when he said, you must not eat any what? Blood. Blood. And so he takes that together. You must not eat fat. You must not eat blood. This is a permanent law from generation to generation. This is why even today, do we eat blood? Do we? We don't eat blood because it's a permanent law. But brother, why don't we eat? Why do some people eat fat? I'm going to confess. I eat a lot of fat. Do you eat a lot of fat? We eat a lot of animal fat, right? And so why do we still do, do not eat blood? Why is there the prohibition from eating blood still applicable during the Christian era? Let's jump forward to Acts 15, 28, 29. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. You must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood, or the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. If you do this, you will do well. well, remember the context of this passage? There was division, there was fighting, and confusion because of what the Christians were going to do with the Gentiles, what the Jews were going to do with the Gentiles, right? And so what was the consensus? When the council met and the prophecy was studied in Amos, What did they say? They said, okay, we don't need to burden the Gentiles concerning Levitical laws. However, they said these things remain applicable in the Christian era, even for Gentiles. What did it include? Do not eat blood. But what is glaringly absent? What is absent there? It doesn't mention anything about fat. Why not? Because the Bible says it's a permanent law. Why in the Christian era did the apostles say, or it doesn't include fat among those which are prohibited things to eat? Well, let's read the book of Leviticus. Because when it says you will not eat fat, what specific instruction was included? Let's read Leviticus seven twenty-three to 27. Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall not eat any fat from an ox, a sheep, or a goat? You see the answer? Right? There were selected animals. Which were they? Ox, sheep, or goat? Also, the fat of an animal which dies, and the fat of an animal torn by beasts, may be put to any other use, but you must certainly not eat it. For whoever eats the fat of the animal from which an offering by fire is offered to Yahuwah, even the person who eats, what does it say? shall be cut off from his people. They'll be expelled from God's people. Okay. You are not to eat any blood, either a bird or animal, in any of your dwellings. Any person who eats any blood, even that person shall be cut off from his people. And so the, the, the command not to eat uh, blood and not to eat fat, it carries the same se- uh, sentence or punishment if you were to violate that command. right? What was the punishment? Will be cut off from the people of, However, the Bible is specific concerning what kind of fat. First of all, it's fat from ox, sheep, or goat. Second of all, not all fat is prohibited. But the fat that was used when it's burned as an offering to Yahuwah, our God. So there's meaty fat that's not included. okay? But the distinct fat, the fat by itself, because when you dissect an animal, you're going to have fat all by itself, not mixed with the meat. That's the kind of fat it's talking about. Okay, And so there's a distinction there. This is why the apostles did not even mention that. So when it comes to the fellowship offering, when was it typically given? Well, Feast of Weeks, the harvesting of first fruits, covenant initiation. Look at feasts and harvesting of first fruits. Those are festivals. When you have a festival or a feast, what does that mean? It's a get-together, right? It's a celebration. And so of course you would give a fellowship offering. Covenant initiation. If you got like a, there's a new agreement, you know, God has a special plan. God reveals something new. We should celebrate with a fellowship offering. Successful military campaign, the people of Israel, they always had to fight against their enemies, right? And so if they were successful, they had fellowship offering. They would celebrate the victory. They will eat together a fellowship offering. What else? Cessation of famine or pestilence. National spiritual renewal, annual family reunions. Even back then, they had family reunions. And so when the families met together, they offered a fellowship offering, maybe during a birthday or something. Thanksgiving. And so there was a specific Thanksgiving that was offered to God, and that was a fellowship offering. What else? A free will offering. You know what a free will offering is? When something unexpectedly good, an unexpected blessing happens in your life, God expects that we should recognize that. It's a free will offering. You can give a burnt offering, a fellowship offering as a free will offering. So these are the instances when we offer fellowship offerings to God. What else? Sin offering now. So we're finished with four. Two left, the sin offering. What is that? Let's read the book of Leviticus 4, 1 and 2. Then Yahweh said to Moses, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. This is how you are to deal with those who sin unintentionally by doing anything that violates one of Yahuwah's commands. So The Bible says if we commit sin, we have to give a sin offering. But for us to be covered by this sin offering, the sin had to be done unintentionally. Now, what does that mean? What is the scope of what it means to sin unintentionally? Well, we contrast that with what it means to sin intentionally. What does that mean? Because when we define what it means to sin intentionally, then the rest of it is considered or categorized unintentional. So what does that mean? In Numbers 15, 30 and 31, but those who brazenly violate Yahuwah's will, let's pause there. What does it mean to brazenly do something? brazenly. Not just intentionally. Brazenly means you do it, not only do you do it intentionally, you do it for a purpose. What is that? To show contempt against who? The one who gave the command, right? Openly, openly. It's like you're calling attention to yourself. Look, I'm disobeying this command of God. It's like you post on Facebook. Look, I'm showing everyone that I am mocking the name of God, you know, brazenly um, showing, uh, sinning against God, have blasphemed Yahuwah, and they must be cut off from the community. Since they have treated Yahuwah's word with contempt and deliberately disobeyed his command, they must be completely cut off and suffer the punishment for their guilt. In other words, the sin offering doesn't apply to them. They're not forgiven, and so they have to be cut off from the people of... Israel, That's pretty bad, right? This is why when a person commits sin out of contempt for God, meaning they blaspheme God. For example, the command of God, do not blaspheme the name, right? And they blaspheme the name on purpose, blatantly, because sometimes maybe it just slipped out wrong. But if they blatantly do it, they announce to the world, look, I don't believe in the name of God, so I'm going to blatantly mock his name. Woo! You better stay away from that person right? That's showing contempt against our God. I mean, if you don't believe in the name of the Father, I would suggest, even during our time, because Yahuwah did say this is the name that I'm to be remembered forever, from generation to generation, until the last. If you don't believe in that name, well, do mock it. Do not mock it, because if one will mock it, if one will blaspheme that name, Bible says, they are going to be guilty. This is why, let's not mock the name of our Father. And so that's for the un- for the intentional ber- uh, brazen sin, blatant sin against Yahuwah. And so when a person commits sin, ha- what is the instruction? Well, let's read Leviticus 4.3. If the high priest sins, bringing guilt upon the entire community, he must give a sin offering for the sin he has committed. He must present to Yahuwah a young bull. With no defects. I guess the young bull was like the most expensive that you can give. And so when someone sinned against Yahuwah, you give an offering that is indicative of your position in Israel. So if you were the high priest, if you were the leader, if you're a common person, you give different offerings. The higher you are, the more expensive. Do you get that? The high priest, the highest, what does he bring? A young bull. Expensive, right? If you're just one of the leaders, what is the, you bring a male goat. See that? A male goat. If you are a commoner, common people, what do you bring? A female goat, right? So you go from a bull and the younger the bull, more expensive it is. So it's a young bull. And so for the people of Israel. So what if the entire nation sins? If the entire Israelite community sins by violating one of Yahuwah's commands, but the people don't realize it, they're still guilty. When they become aware of their sin, the people must bring a young bull as an offering for their sin and present it before the tabernacle. The elders of the community must then lay their hands on the bull's head and slaughter it before Yahuwah. And so God had different rules depending on who sinned. And it was atoned for by the sin offering. Now, that's the sin offering. Now we go to the guilt offering. What is the distinction between the guilt offering and the sin offering? Leviticus 5, 14, 16. Yahuwah spoke to Moses, if any of you fail to do your duty by unintentionally doing something wrong with any of Yahuwah's holy things, Bring a guilt offering to Yahuwah. It must be a ram that has no defects or its value in silver, weighed according to the official standards of the holy place, pay for whatever holy things you, you, you use, plus one-fifth more. Give it to the priest. So the priest will use the ram sacrifice for the guilt offering to make peace with Yahuwah for what you did wrong, and you will be forgiven. So what is the distinction between the guilt offering and the sin offering? With the guilt offering, your sin against Yahuwah has caused other damages. For example, maybe you you desecrated a part of the tabernacle accidentally, for example. You give the guilt offering, plus you also pay for what you broke. right? And so if it causes damage, not only do you give offering, you also make restitution for the injury or damage that you have done. And so this really applies when the injury done is against your fellow Israelite, right? And so Leviticus 6, 1 to 3, then Yahuwah said to Moses, suppose one of you sins against your associate and is unfaithful to Yahuwah. Suppose you cheat in a deal involving a security deposit, or you steal or commit fraud, or you find lost property and lie about it, or you lie while swearing to tell the truth, or you commit any other such sin. And so here are sins against God, first and foremost, but they're not just sins. Because, because of these sins, what happens? You, it results in injury against some other person. For example, one who is a victim of fraud. Or maybe because of your lie, you benefited at the cost of someone else. That is a, that is a sin that requires a guilt offering. And so what is done? Leviticus 6.47, if you have sinned in any of these ways, you are guilty. You must give back whatever you stole or the money you took by extortion or the security deposit or the lost property you found or anything obtained by swearing falsely. You must make restitution by paying the full price plus an additional 20% to the person you have harmed. On the same day, you must present a guilt offering. As a guilt offering to Yahuwah, you must bring to the priest your own ram with no defects, or you may buy one of equal value. Through this process, the priest will purify you before Yahuwah, making you right with him, and you will be forgiven for any of these sins you have committed. And so the guilt offering involves not only the sacrifice, burnt sacrifice, but also you have to make retribution, meaning you have to pay back what you got illegally, and on top of that, you pay an, an additional 20%. You can call that the pain and suffering tax, right? And so that's what happens. So these are the different offerings that the people of God offered or sacrificed to. Yahoo. What's the first one again? Burnt offering, then the grain offering, and then the drink offering and then the sin offering no the uh, fellowship offering is that your favorite <laughs> that's my favorite brother i can see that <laughs> the the uh, uh, fellowship offering the grain offering the sin offering and the yield offering you know what the favorite offering was of yahushas of yahuwah's you know what was the favorite offering that was given to yahuwah what do you think it was What was the the best offering that was given to you? Let's read. Ephesians uh, 5, 1-2. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love. This is Christ loved us and gave himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What do you think was the most fragrant offering that was presented to you, our God? When his son, offered himself to Noah. When that happened, the Levitical system became obsolete. Because the Bible says when he offered himself to God, what the priest used to do, the perpetual, right? The perpetual burnt offering, every day they have to provide a burnt offering, all of that would not be needed because Yahusha satisfied completely. The forgiveness that was purchased through His blood is now and forever. Okay, all right. That's our lesson for Leviticus. We will not proceed to our mailbox. Is that okay. This is the. This is actually a series of questions, and we're going to discuss the series. Uh, June. Hi, brother. Greetings to you all. We have some. Questions with regard to BHP number 61, hope you can be patient with us. You can give us the answers partially at your convenience in BHP uh, Project number 61, long Suffering. Question 1, Revelation 13, 16-17, which you taught is also teaching what was taught by the INC. But the difference is why can't you mention Catholic Church like them? Because it wasn't relevant to the question. Right When we presented Revelation 13, 16, and 17, what was the answer? What was the question I mean? The question was, how can we know if someone is recognizing a different Lord other than Yahusha? How can we know if someone belongs to someone else as property or a slave? That was the question. And so what was the answer? Well, Revelation 13, 16 and 17, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on the right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the name of his, the number of his name. And so when we ask a question, how can, who are those who recognize a different Lord? When they recognize someone, who gives them a mark and because of this mark, they cannot do certain things. And so this, uh, for example, this person mentioned here in Revelation 13 is about someone who causes all, right? And because of the mark that he gives, they're the only ones who can buy, who can sell. In other words, their authority to buy and to sell comes from the mark that was given by this person and so this person is a ruler over those who belong to them or who have the mark and so those who recognize someone and those whose freedom are curtailed because someone controls them or rules over them well then they are believing in a different lord now of course this was fulfilled when the pope right the papacy um used his authority to control basically everything in the catholic church but can we say the same thing with other church organizations perhaps it's up to you to explore and to examine but what we want to know is when it comes to another lord another one who rules over you they're given a mark because of that mark they have privileges okay for us yahushites who do we recognize as our lord Yahusha, right? Do we have a mark as well? Do we have a sign? Yes. What is our sign? Is it a logo? No, not a logo. What is our sign? Because we're Yahushites. What is our visible sign as followers of Yahusha? Let's read John 13, 34, 35. Yahushua is the one speaking. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. How can we prove? How, what is the mark that we have as followers of Yahusha? It is our love for one another. And so when people see that we love one another the same way Yahusha loves us, what will they say? It will prove that we are the disciples of Yahusha. And so if Yahusha is our ruler, and we have his mark. That mark is his love. And so how does this mark affect our life? In 2 Corinthians 5.14, we are ruled by the love of Christ. Now that we recognize that one man died for everyone, which means that they should all share in his death. And so if Yahusha is our ruler, our mark is who? Our is love. What is, our mark is love. We practice it. We love each other the same way Yahusha loves us. Very different, right? From the mark that was given by the other leader in Revelation 13, 16, the other Lord, the other master. You see, Revelation 13 points to a different master, a different Lord, one who doesn't rule by love but rules by something else. In that case, it was specified buying or selling. It's up to you to put the dots together. There's another question, uh, sec- uh, second question, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 to 4, in which the son of perdition was prophesied and mentioned. Is the Bible referring this to the executive minister of the iglesia and It's not for me to say, okay? What can we say about 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 to 4? What it says in the verse. What does it say in the verse? 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 to 4, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come, unless the falling away comes first. So let's pause her. And so Apostle Paul is telling us about the sequence of events here, right? There's going to be the, the day that's going to come. What is that day? Judgment, Judgment day. That's the day, the second advent of Yahushua the Christ. Before that day comes, what's going to happen? A falling away from the faith. Who will lead is falling away from the faith. Bible says he's called the man of sin. He's also called the son of huh? perdition. What will he do? He who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Is this passage taught by INC? Yeah, in lesson number six, right? And so how do we apply this? How was it taught in INC, lesson number six, when this is being taught to those who want to become members of the church? Well, this is how it's taught. They ask the question, well, who is the one who exalts himself there? How does he exalt himself? The next verse that is read is Matthew 23, 8-10. You must not be called teacher because you are all equal and have only one teacher. And you must not call anyone here on earth father because you have only the one father in heaven. We understand this doctrine, Right? who is the man of sin, who will elevate himself, exalt himself. The Bible says in Matthew 23, 8 to 10, Yahusha is the one speaking. He said, you are all equal, but if there's anyone amongst you who wants to make himself distinct, different, no longer together with a congregation of equals, but exalts himself, how? will be called father. Imagine that. He'll be called father. In other words, rather, then God, the Father, being recognized as God, right? He will be God, and so this was fulfilled in the papacy, right? When the pope is, and also the priests are called fathers of spirits, in or uh, they're called fathers in the spiritual order. Remember that that lesson. So that's true, okay? That's true. However, what Yahusha's talking about here is not finished. Right? He said, you're all equal, because if you exalt yourself, you want to become like the father, then you Apostle Paul is using that, and he says, then you are becoming like a man of sins and a perdition when you exalt yourself, right? When you exalt yourself beyond the point that God allows, you're not supposed to exalt yourself. But if you make yourself a father, whew, that's not good. But in addition to that, what also does he say? Verse 10. What does it say in verse 10? Nor, so this is linked to 8 and 9, nor should you be called leader because your one and only leader is the Messiah. If so, if there's someone from among us, congregation of equals, who will exalt himself to become like the Messiah, right? What is the Messiah? What is his authority over the flock? Obey and never right? So if someone will exalt himself, calling himself a leader to the level of the Messiah, woo! Right? Then they're also fulfilling. Second Thessalonians 2, 3 down to 4. It's up to you to make that call. But there's another part to that. He's also called a son of perdition. perdition. How does one become a son of perdition? Well, this is what it says in Matthew 15, 3 to 6. Yahusha replied, and why do you, by your traditions, violate the direct commandments of God. For instance, God says, honor your father and mother, and anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. But you say it's all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you, or I have vowed to give to God what I would have given you. This way, you say they don't need to honor their parents, and so you cancel the word of God for the sake of your own tradition. How does one become a son of tradition? When you live under the curse of God. When God says that that person must be put to death. And who are they? Bible says those who do not honor father or mother. Those who curse or disrespect father or mother. Well, I'm doing this for a religious reason. I'm doing this because rather than help my father or my mother, I would rather use that help towards the religion I am leading. What does Yahusha say? Okay, you're excused. No, Yahusha says, you are a hypocrite. And he says, you dishonor God and you cancel out the word of God. And so that person can be categorized as a son of perdition. So you look at the clues. It begins with the day, right? The day, what is that? Judgment day. Before it happens, there's gonna be a falling away. By who? Someone who's called son of perdition. What will he do? Exalt himself. How so? He'll be called leader leader so it's up to you to put together to connect the dots but i will not do that for you you got to use your brain let's go to the next question you also taught during the year 2017 2018 in the small group of inc small remnant you were then with brother lavelle i don't know who that is what i'm thinking is brother lowell not lavelle You also taught you were all in the small remnant. So now are you saying that the small remnant that you taught in 2017-18 was not at all the small remnant referred to as the third group? Mm, A lot of things there. First of all, the small remnant is not the whole third group. It's the small remnant of the third group. You see the distinction? We're not talking about the third group. We're not saying the small remnant is a fourth group. No. Or we're not saying the small remnant is the third group. No. We're saying the small remnant is the small remnant of the third group. Right? And the small remnant prophecy we first proclaimed back in 2017. Was there already a small remnant? Yes. But do we know who they are? I don't know who they are. What can we do? The best we can do is present what the Bible teaches concerning the character, what the Bible teaches about the small remnant and see where we go, right? I don't, we're not the ones who determine who belongs to the very small remnant, because just because one is expelled, for example, from the institution, doesn't mean automatically, oh, you're a small remnant. No, you have to look at all the clues. Right, you got to look at all what the Bible says. Because it doesn't say just because you're expelled from the institution you're a small remnant. No, you could have been expelled from the, the institution, but uh, why were you expelled? Oh, because uh, you know I had sexual intercourse with this and that. Oh, because you know I committed adultery. Oh, because um, I did drugs and all that. Okay, that's a different story. You see where I'm getting at, right? So what does it mean then? How does one belong to the very small remnant? How does the Bible describe the small remnant? Well, let's read the book of Isaiah 1, 8-9. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in the garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Unless Yahuwah hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. And so the Bible says that the small remnant was left by who? God. God is the one who calls those who belong to the very small remnant, okay? Now, what is the distinction of the very small remnant? They are different from where they came from. In other words, they resisted where they came from. Because where they came from has turned away from who? Yahweh, our God. This is why they're likened to Sodom and Gomorrah. And so they resisted. The daughter of Zion went this way. A small remnant went which way? The opposite way, right? That's the very small remnant. However, that's not the totality of the very small remnant. How else does the Bible distinguish the very small remnant of the third group? In Zechariah 13, verse 9, this third I will bring into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, Yahuwah is our God. And so what is one? distinction of the small remnant. They will call on the name of Yahuwah. Well you might say well I don't read the word remnant there. It's just a third group. Well it's a third group going to the fire. What is left is a small remnant. But what else corroborates this prophecy of Zechariah thirteen nine, Joel 231-32. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of Yahuwah come. What is that great and terrible day of Yahuwah? The end of the world. Before that comes, what will happen? And it shall come to pass, that whoever shall call on the name of Yahuwah shall be delivered. Or in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as Yahuwah hath said, and in the remnant whom Yahuwah shall call. And so before the end comes, what's gonna happen? There's gonna be a remnant. You get that? And this remnant, who calls? God, Yahuwah. What is their distinction? The Bible says, they shall call on the name of Yahuwah. You see a pattern there? And so they will call on the name of Yahuwah. What else? Revelation 12, verse 17. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Yahusha Christ. What else is the distinction of the very small remnant? Well, this is the Bible speaking about a woman. We know what the woman refers to, right? The church, first century, has a seed, right? But there's going to be a what? A remnant of the seed. And what is its distinction? They keep the commandments of... God, despite not enough to simply call upon Yahuwah, this very small remnant is also going to keep the commands of God. Not only that, they will have the testimony of Yahusha. What's the testimony of Yahusha? The spirit of prophecy. So there's going to be prophecies that testify to their work. And so this is what we have. Again, who alone can declare who belongs to the small remnant? God. He is the one who calls, not us. What can we do? We can simply present the word of God. We can simply present the prophecies of scripture. It's up to you to look into it and pray that Yahuwah will call us to belong to the very small remnant. Okay. Let's go to question number four. In Exodus 34, 25 to 26, it mentions that do it mention it mentions that do not cook. A young sheep from its mother's milk. Are we referring to lamb chops? Sorry, I'm not joking about this. Okay, it's a legitimate question. How many here remember that passage? It actually is not about sheep or lamb chops. What was it about? It was about Exodus 34:26. This is the verse that he cited, right? 34, 25, 26. Let's read 26 first. You shall bring the very first of the first fruits of your soil into the house of Yehudah, your God. You shall not boil <laughs> you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk okay how many here know what the meaning of this is when you look at google when you when you, when you do a google search when you look at the scholar's answer you know what they say the reason why it mentions that's because this is a pagan practice and Yahuwah wanted to make his people distinct from the pagans. If the pagans did something like this, an act of cruelty, that you would boil a young goat together with his mother's milk because supposedly the, the mother would be there to see it. It's an act of cruelty, okay? And so they said, as God's people, you have to be different from the, the pagan. Okay, that makes sense. However, when you look at the context, it's kind of off, Right? Why would that command out of the blue jump at you after God says in verse 26, you shall bring the very first of the first fruits of your soil into the house of Yahuwah, your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. It's kind of off, right? You're talking about first fruits. And all of a sudden, command goes, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's Milk, because if you were to offer a sacrifice to God, like what we learned today, how do you do it? A burnt offering. You don't boil it. You don't boil it. And so when this was added, something seems to be off, right? Why? Because look at the context about the very first fruits. And if you look at the entire context, if you read verse 19, the Bible says the first offspring, from every womb belongs to me and all your male livestock, the first offspring from cattle and sheep. And so the passage in context is about the first belonging to God. The firstborn is dedicated to who? To God. The firstborn of a cattle and livestock belongs to who? Yahuwah. The first fruits belong to who? Yahuwah are? God's supposed to be dedicated to God, right? So that's 3419. And then you go to 25 to 26. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor is the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover to be left over until morning. You shall bring the very first of the first fruits of your soil into the house of Yahweh your God. You shall not boil a young goat in his mother's milk. And so it's kind of off. It's about... It's about the festival. It's about what's to be offered to God, the first fruit, the first, uh, the firstborn male of cattle, right? And all of a sudden you go to young goat. Why? Well, look at the word boy. Why don't you look at the word boy? What is the Hebrew word of the word boy? You know, I'm thankful because we have this software called... Um, Blue letter Bible. It's on the internet. Just type blue letter Bible. And when you put Exodus 34, 26, it will show you what the meaning of, the Hebrew meaning of uh, boil. It's, I don't know if you pronounce it bashal. You see it? H, Hebrew word 1310. Bashal. That's the Hebrew word. Seed, right? Boil. Thou shall not see Thou shall not boil. Bashal. And so what does that mean? When you look at the Hebrew word, there it is, bashal, and you look at the how it's used in the Bible. And when you look at how it's used in the Bible at the bottom, there's something that jumps out at you. The word ripe. Ripe. And that word ripe was used in Genesis 40 when God describes to Abraham the grapes in the promised land of Canaan. It's ripe. What does ripe mean? Fully grown, complete, fully grown, right? And so when we look at that, that the word seed, bashal, can mean ripe or fully grown, now it makes sense. Let's go to Exodus 34, 25 to 26. You shall not boil a young goat in his mother's milk. You shall not ripen. What does that mean to ripen? To make mature, to make old, right? You shall not ripen a young goat in its mother's milk. In other words, God is telling us when you offer or dedicate the firstborn from an animal's womb, don't wait until it grows up with its mother's milk to offer it. Offer it right away. Does that make sense? You shall not boil, you shall not ripen. In other words, it's a poetic way to tell the people of God, do not wait for the goat to grow up in his mother's milk, to become complete, to become ripe, before you dedicate it to God. Right? And so when you look at the context, the Bible says um, it mentions you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice for loving bread, nor as a sacrifice of the feast of the Passover to be left over until morning. You shall bring the very first of the first fruits. And so it's, the context is urgency, right? And so after that, it says when you offer that goat, make sure it's still young. It's still very young. Don't wait until it's grown with his mother's milk. That's what it means. Make sense? Okay. All right, let's go to the next question. In Hebrews thirteen seventeen, it says, Have confidence in your leaders, and submit to their authority, because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Although Christ is the head of the church, Christ placed leaders to watch over us, and if they do wrong, they are accountable to God. you believe that? Is it true that Christ is the head of the church? Yeah. Did he place leaders to watch over us? Yes. Should we Obey those leaders, submit to those leaders. It depends. It depends on what they want you to do, right? If they tell you to do something against the will of God, of course you say say no. And the question is, and if they do wrong, they are accountable to God. If our leaders do wrong, is it true that they are accountable to God? Yes, yes, they are accountable to God. However, always keep this in mind: our leaders will be held accountable to God if they do wrong. But that doesn't mean the church administration or the leaders. Will answer for us. You get that? Because there are those who think, wait a minute. You know, if uh, they tell us to do something and we know it's wrong, we follow it anyways. They will answer for us. They will answer for our sins. No, it's as though they will be when when it says they'll be held accountable to God. It's as though we're no longer going to be held accountable. It's like we can say to God, "Yeah, I know I did wrong, but I'm just following my leader." You see that? Is that how it is? Let's read the book of Romans fourteen twelve. Yes, each of us, not just the leaders, each of us will give a personal account to God. See, a lot of people want to pass the buck of responsibility to someone else. They just want to be told what to do. He's my leader. Therefore, I just followed him, even if it's wrong. Therefore, he has to answer for me. No, the Bible says, each of us will give a personal account to God. Our leaders will be held accountable to God, but so will we. We also will be held accountable to God. We cannot say to God, the leader made me do it. Well, I guess you could, but God won't. Accept that. Why? Let's read 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And so, when God gives judgment, when we will be held accountable, it's not going to be one. It's not going to be one judgment for everyone. You're listed in the church's registry. All of you have the same judgment. No, the Bible says each of us will appear before the judgment seat of Yahusha, the Christ. Can we say to Yahusha the Christ, Yahusha? I was just following my leaders. No, because we are all going to be held accountable for what we do. This is why Apostle Paul gave the following instruction. Philippians 2 verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The administration will not save us. Our leaders will not save us. It is God who will save us, but we have to do our part. We have to work out our own salvation, okay? This is why we cannot say, well, because the leader is going to be held accountable to God, I'm no longer going to be held accountable to God. No, we will. This is why what does Yahusha instruct us? This is what he says in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Go in through the narrow gate because the gate to hell is wide and the road that leads to it is easy. And there are many who travel, but the gate to life is narrow. And the way that leads to it is hard. There are a few people who find it. And so because we're going to be held accountable for what we do, because we're going to be facing the judgment seat of Christ for what we do, what does Yahusha instruct us? We have to use our mind. How? To make a distinction between right and wrong, between the narrow gate and the wide gate. What's the wide gate? That's what a lot of people do. What's the narrow gate? It's more difficult. Only if you find it and follow it. But look at the destinations of the two. The Bible says the wide gate leads to what? Destruction. Leads to hell. But the narrow gate leads to life. Why do people follow the wide gate? Because when they follow the wide gate, guess what? They're just following what everyone else is doing. Instead of using what? Their mind. It's called blind following. Yahusha doesn't want that. He wants us to use our mind to discern, to know the difference between what is the narrow gate and the wide gate. What else? Matthew 7, 15 and 20. Be on your guard against false prophets. And there's a lot. Yahushua even forewarned in the last days there's going to be many false prophets. This is what we have got to use our mind. You know who's going to be fooled by a false prophet? Those who don't use their thinking. When they say everyone else is doing this, this is what I've been doing before. And so when we have that kind of thinking, then we will not be able to see the difference between the false prophet and the true one. Be on your guard against false prophets. They come to you looking like sheep on the outside, but on the inside, they are like wild wolves. So how can we know the difference between a true prophet and a false one? You will know them. What does it say? Not just by what they teach, but also by what they do, fallen bushes do not bear grapes and bear, and briars do not bear, uh, bear figs. A healthy tree bear, bears good fruit, but a poor tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a poor tree cannot bear good fruit. And any tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know the false prophets by what they do. And so Yahusha wants us to use our discernment. What else? Matthew 7, 27. So then anyone who hears these words of mine, and obeys them is like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain poured down, the rivers flooded over, and the wind blew hard against that house. But it did not fall because it was built on rock. But anyone who hears these words of mine and does not obey them is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain poured down, the rivers flooded over, the wind blew hard against that house and fell. And what a terrible fall that was. And so how else? Must, what else must we do so that when we face the judgment seat of Yahusha, we're not going to be disappointed. We have to make a distinction between the house that's built on a rock and the house built on sand. How do you make that distinction? Look at the word of God. So it all boils down to using the word of God, the Bible. When we use the Bible, we will know the white gate, the narrow gate. When we use the Bible, we will know a true leader, a false leader. When we use the Bible, we will know a rock or sand, right? Once we know that, what does Yahushua expect us to do? To follow what the Word of God teaches us. And this is what we want you to do. Because we cannot say to Yahushua, when we are going to, when we face the judgment seat of Yahushua, we cannot go to Yahushua and say to them, I'm sorry, Yahushua, I'm just following my leaders. Yahushua is not going to take that. He has given us his word. We have to follow because we will be held accountable for what we do. We have to work out our own salvation. Okay, And so once we find discrepancies, what is our responsibility? Let's read Ephesians 5, 8 to 11. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. This is why we left. We don't want to have any more fellowship with works of darkness. Instead, it has to be exposed. Right? But how do we expose that? What's the proper way? We just keep reading the following verse in 13 and 14. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For it is the light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What is the proper way of exposing um, incorrect doctrine, works of darkness? It is by presenting what? The light. Because the light will do the work of exposing. You see the difference? We present the light. We present the word of God and let the word of God expose what is in darkness. And this is what we do when we preach the word of God. And so what does God want us to do? When we don't want to think for ourselves, when we are blind followers like zombies, Apostle Paul says, wake up. Isn't that very apt advice today, right? Wake up! Because a lot of times we live our life asleep. We simply follow what the masses do. We simply follow what social media tells us. We simply follow because we want to belong in our peer group. No, we got to follow because we're thinking. Wake up. You cannot think unless you're awake. When we wake up, look for the light because the light will guide us, show you the difference between what is right and what is wrong. Okay, so that's how we do it. And let's go to the final question. Acts 14, 23 and Acts 20, 17. When they had appointed elders for them. Various churches, with prayer and fasting, they entrusted them to the protection of the Lord in whom they had believed. And in Acts 20, verse 17, from Miletus, he sent a message to Ephesus, telling the elders of the church to come to him. So that's the the basis of this question, passage in Acts, namely Acts 20, verse 17. And then here's the question. Here it is. A brother... Some of the brethren stayed in the INC because they still believe and that they hope by remaining in the church, they will protect the church somehow by leaving some good brethren there and therefore God would still have mercy on them. Okay, I mean, there's a lot of people who have that kind of thinking and I applaud them for that. I mean, they have a good heart, I mean, but they also see that there's something wrong with the church, right? They see there's something wrong with the church. That's why this question is asked. And so he believes that, okay, yes, there's something wrong with the church. Yes, there's something wrong with church leadership. But I still want to stay in the church because somehow by staying in the church and not leaving the brethren there, God will have mercy, right? Is that the thinking of a lot of people today? That's the thinking of a lot of people today. And what we want is for God to have mercy upon the church. But how does that happen? How and when will God show mercy to his nation or to his people, right? And this is what it says in Acts 20, verse 17. Let's read the passage first. From Miletus, Paul sent a message to Ephesus asking the elders of the church to meet him. And the reason why is because Apostle Paul knew he was about to die. He didn't have many more days left on earth. And so he met with the elders. He met with the leaders of church and what was his instruction to the church concerning the church acts twenty twenty eight. so keep watch over yourselves and over all the flock which the holy spirit has placed in your care be shepherds of the church of god which he made his own through the blood of his son and so according to the holy scriptures what was the reason what was the instruction of apostle paul to all the elders because he knew he was about to die. What did he say? He said to them, shepherd the church of God. What does it mean to shepherd? To rule over? Not to rule over, but to take care. You know what happened after the apostles died? The shepherds became rulers. This is why you got Catholicism, right? Right? Shepherds became rulers. They had their own ideas. And so what happened? The church apostatized. Maybe there were people there who believed the leaders when they were, you know, becoming rulers. Oh, I'll just follow along so that God will have mercy on the church. What happened? 29 to 30, Apostle Paul said, I know that after I leave, fierce wolves will come among you and they will not spare the flock, that's the church. Time will come when some men from your own group, these are the leaders, the leaders, the main people. Some men from your own group will tell lies to lead the believers away after them. Yeah. Why did these believers follow the lie? I don't know. Maybe because they weren't thinking, right? Blind followers. Hey, they're leaders. They're leaders. were are supposed to submit. And so they believe the lies. And so what happened to the church? Because they believed the lies. Because they did not speak up. What happened to the church? It fell by means of apostasy. Did God show his mercy on that church? No. Why? Because they believed the lie. Instead of correcting their leaders, they pretend that nothing is wrong. Maybe they said to themselves, oh, God will correct the leaders. That's not what happened. What happened? They fell away from apostasy. This is why the prophet of God, Jeremiah, said the following, following advice, which is also applicable for us today. But I Yahuwah will punish them for these things. I will take revenge on this nation. That's his own people he was talking about. Not the enemies of Israel, but his own people. God is speaking about his people, his nation. Right, He said, I will punish them for these things. I will take revenge on this nation. A terrible and shocking thing has happened in the land. Prophets speak nothing but lies. Priests rule as the prophets command. And my people offer no objections. But what will they do when it all comes to an end? The Bible says, Israel was punished by God. And it came to an end because... When the prophets spoke lies and the priests ruled as the prophets command, the people did not object. They did not say anything. Maybe they were saying to themselves, maybe God will have mercy. You know, brethren, there's a lot of brethren who have good hearts. They want to stay in the church because you know they want to really believe. It's still the church that's going to be saved. They really believe. That if they stay, then you can help out of brethren. But the best way to help the church is this. Object to the lies. Correct your leaders. Talk to your leaders about them. Talk to your leaders about certain teachings that are against the will of God. Then maybe God will have mercy. Okay, This is the best thing we can do to God's people when we speak the truth. Because we can ever receive the favor of God, when we are believing a lie. It has to be the truth that we are upholding. Okay? All right. That is our lesson for today. Uh, We invite you to attend again next week for our next Bible History Project. So stand, and we shall pray together. Almighty and loving Yahuwah our God, yes. thank you so much for your holy words and commands. We hold on to them every day. Yes. They are our light that guides us. Yes. So that we can make the proper choices and decisions in our life. Amen. Father, Amen. please show mercy upon your people. Yes. We have many, many friends and loved ones yes. who are in different religions. Yes. Father, we love them all. Yes. Regardless of faith, we will still and always love them. Yes. We ask that you please open our eyes. We yes. want to know the truth because we know time is. Fast moving, yes. So much so that the day of your wrath is at the very doors. Yes, Father, help us to prepare ourselves. Yes, may you send your Holy Spirit to guide us. Yes, when we gather for worship, please manifest yourself. Yes, we can be edified in our faith. Amen. Lord Yahusha Hamashiach. Yes, O Lord Yahusha. We belong to you. Yes. We will always belong to you. Yes, Lord. You gave up your life for us. Yes. And so you and you will be our leader. You are our only Messiah. Yes. Please remember us in times of tribulation. Yes. Protect us, O Lord, and help us to remain faithful and loyal to you. Amen. Thank you, Father, for listening to our prayers. Yes, Father. We ask and beg everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahushua. Amen. Amen.